Okay, good. So it's nice to be back in Glasgow. Thank you for having me. Um, I suppose I should just let you know, uh, given that this is the first talk of the term, I imagine there are one or two new first years here in the, uh, in the, in the group, in the audience here, I suppose. Uh, so let me tell you this, right? There are, there are two ways in which you can tell Father Ross is about to ask you to do something. So the first is, where is Father Ross? There's Father Ross. So the first is, if you turn around, you notice that he's wearing a fancy Roman collar, right? That is a sure sign that he has run out of normal shirts, which means that if you are talking to him, he's almost certainly about to ask you to do his ironing. The second thing, word to the wise, to new first years, is that if you ever catch your chaplain, Father Ross, being nice to you, do not be fooled, especially if he's buying you food or alcohol. Do not be fooled. This is a sure sign that he is about to ask you to do something. I um, somewhat naively allowed Father Ross to buy me a drink last summer and lulled into a full sense of security, he sprung a job on me. And so I find myself here giving this talk. Father Ross told me I was to give a talk on the sacraments. He did not tell me it was going to be the first talk of this series. And that's important because it kind of changes slightly the content of the talk a little bit. Because there's no use talking to you about the sacraments as the first talk in a series of talks on the sacraments unless we put the sacraments within a context within a perspective. So what I want to do first, the first part of the talk, is going to be about putting the sacraments within a context. So what I don't want you to do is go away from tonight thinking that the sacraments are just nice little ceremonies that we Catholics do, or that stand alone or in isolation. Nor do I want you to think that the sacraments are, as they are often presented, just a help in the spiritual life. I don't know if you've played that, I don't know what that game is, that the, is it Tomb Runner or something? You know, that thing where you can play it on your phone and you're sort of running along and every so often you get the coin and it gives you a boost and you can kind of jump a bit further or you can, whatever it is. And sometimes we can kind of think of the sacraments a little bit like that, that if we get the sacraments, then we can, you know, we can be a bit, bit extra Christian, you know? That's not quite. Well, you know, there's a certain truth there but it's not the whole truth. What I want to suggest, what I hope will become evident, is that the sacraments are an integral part of God's plan for you as an individual, but also for the whole cosmos. The sacraments are acts of Christ upon us, and they make us into the church. And the church is not an afterthought. The church is God's plan for the whole of his creation. In short, have you, any of you got Universalis? Can you pull up Universalis for a moment and go to the readings of the, the Mass for today? Right? And if you go to the offertory prayer for the Mass, for Saint, so Saint, today is the Feast of St. Kim Tai Gong. Now, if you go to the offertory prayer, can you get the offertory prayer up? Can you get the offertory prayer up? Have you got it? Have you got it? Okay, can you read it out? Read it out. 
with, with favor, Almighty God, on the offerings of your people, and through the intercession of the blessed martyrs, grant that we ourselves may become a sacrifice acceptable to you for the salvation of the body. Excellent. Okay, so that bit there. Grant that we ourselves may become a sacrifice acceptable to you for the salvation of all the world. That's it. That's what the sacraments do. That's what God's plan for the universe is. That's what the church is all about. Grant that we ourselves may become a sacrifice that is acceptable to you for the salvation of the whole world. Or, as you get in the third Eucharistic prayer, may he, that is Christ, make of us an eternal gift to you, that is God the Father. That's God's plan for us and through us, the whole cosmos. And Christ achieves that in us through the sacraments. That's God's plan. Let's put it into as broad a cop a possible a context okay so normally one of the things you, you, you crop up again in, again and again in these talks is um, so the faith movement the faith movement has a particular way of presenting arranging the the truths of our faith it's not going to tell you something that that any other catholic movement wouldn't tell you but it has a way of arranging them that is kind of particularly coherent and particularly compelling one of the normal things that the the, the faith movement will do is it will try to say that or it will say that there is no conflict between science what science tells us about the universe and what our faith tells us about reality so that actually from science you can prove the existence of God. I don't want to say anything quite so robust as that, but what I do want to say to you tonight is that our knowledge of the world, science, if you like, what we know about reality, rather than proving the existence of God, because the idea of God comes with all sorts of connotations, brings us to the brink of a mystery. If we ask why any given situation presents itself to us, we can trace it in one of two ways. We can trace it sort of chronologically, that is vertically, or we can trace it kind of why, so sort of out the way, horizontally. So if we were to say, why does this creature in front of me have large ears? What is the explanation for that? You might ask, well, answer, well, because it's a rabbit. And then I would ask you, well, why is there a rabbit to be in front of me? And then chronologically, of course, you'll say, well, you know, this rabbit was caused by, I don't know, Jessica and, and, and uh, Roger who got together and who gave each other a special hug that only married rabbits give to each other. And then you can trace the ancestry of that rabbit back through, you know, however far you back, and to whatever other animals that rabbits are descended from in the order of evolution. And then you go back and you go back and you can sort of say to the origins of life, to the origin of the planet on which life emerged, to the origin of the universe in which planets evolved, to the laws of physics that gave rise to the universe. And science gives us an explanation for these things. But eventually you get to the question, why does anything exist rather than nothing? And all along the way, we've been asking questions and we've been able to give some sort of an answer. And then we get to this. And this is what I mean, is that science brings us to the brink of a mystery. That's the mystery. There must be something that exists in a different way to how caused realities exist, 
within the universe. And this mystery is the grounds of existence. But be careful about talking about this thing that gives existence to the universe because we only know what things are like by looking at caused things within the universe. So we don't really know what an uncaused thing that transcends the universe would really be like. And that's why I say, I think at this point, it is best just to say mystery. There is some mystery that grounds the existence of the universe. And if we were to look horizontally and we ask, well, why is this rabbit the sort of thing that has big ears? Well, then we would have to look at the environment and say, well, the rabbit has big ears because fo- so that it can hear foxes coming or whatever, whatever the predator of a rabbit is. But then we would have to ask, well, why, does, why are there these predators that feed on rabbits? And then you have to say, well, why are foxes the way that foxes are? And then you get to the question of the environment of foxes. And then when you get to the question of environment, you get into issues of biology and say, well, why is the environment the way that it is? And it's you know, various biological explanations. And then you would have to say, well, you know, and why is that the way that it is? Well, it's to do with the laws of matter. And then eventually you get to the question again. You know, well, why are the laws of matter the way they are? Why is matter the way that it is? Eventually, why does matter exist instead of nothing? And you push it. Whichever way you push the question, you come to that question. Why does something exist? And we know that something does exist from our experience. Why does something exist rather than nothing? And we are on the brink of that mystery. And again, be careful, because we're at the limits of our language. Because nothing, important, is not a thing. Even if we say nothing is the absence of anything, we can't help but think absence is something. It's almost impossible to think of nothing. It's impossible to conceptualise nothing. The moment you try to have a concept of nothing, you've got a concept which is something, which means you're in trouble when you're trying to think of nothing, if you see what I mean. Nothing is, if you think about it, is a nonsensical sentence. Nothing exists is a nonsensical sentence. Because if there's nothing, there's nothing to exist. And so there's nothing doing the existing. (laughs) So how can you use the verb? You kind of get yourself into all sorts of problems. It's a contradiction in terms. In order that something exists, and we know that something exists because we experience it, there must be some mysterious grounds of existence. Nothing cannot cause anything. When we start asking the question about reality around us, If we are courageous and push those questions far enough, we will come to the brink of a mystery. As Catholics, we believe in faith that this mystery, that we know is out there, chooses to make itself known to us, above all, in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, it reveals itself as a personal God. 
So we can know that the mystery is there, but when we come to saying that that mystery is a personal God, that's something that we do in faith. At which point you might well say, so what? I like going clubbing and having a few drinks with my mates or whatever it is that you enjoy doing. So why should I care about this mysterious ground of the universe's existence? And at this point, what I want to suggest to you is that if you look deep inside yourselves, you know, you know that you are constantly striving after things, whatever those things may be. But if you look deep inside of yourself, you will notice that there is a mismatch between the objects you want and the depth and the strength of the desire with which you want them. How often have you really wanted something, whatever it is, and at the moment you get it, you're bored with it. You know, Christmas morning, you know, you're kind of, kind of 12 years, no, younger than 12 years old, eight years old, and you've been wanting a transformer for three months, one of the dino bots, you know, because they were cool. And Christmas morning, you open your Christmas presents and you've got a dino bot, a Tyrannosaurus Rex that turns into a robot. What more could an eight-year-old want? And you're bored within half an hour. You think about it. But that's what an eight... That, you know, the, but it doesn't change whether you're eight or 88 or 38 or 28. Actually, very often, the things that we want, the moment we get them, we're bored of them. Because the desire in our heart is bigger than the object we focus our desire on. Whatever the thing that you want, whatever worldly success looks like, sex, drugs, money, prestige, a career, being famous or powerful, appearing on Love Island, winning the X Factor, you will find... Not that these things are necessarily bad, but that the desire you have is bigger than the object you have fixed that desire on. In the Catholic faith, we believe, but I would go further and say if you look at the saints, the saints know experientially from their lives of prayer that the only thing capable of answering the human heart's desire, the only thing big enough to respond properly and to satisfy that desire, the only thing deep enough to respond to that mystery, to that desire, is this mystery that brought the universe into being, out of nothingness, that is so absolute a mystery, our language can't really express it. And so why should you care about this mystery revealing itself? Because it's God who is the answer to the deepest desires of your heart, who reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ. And you will not find rest for your hearts, as Augustine tells us, until they rest in God. And moreover, the most perfect way in which you can encounter this God this mystery here and now in your life is through the sacraments which make you into the church. These ceremonies which, you know, are often performed badly but nonetheless are the way in which God achieves his design in you. 
All right, so that's the broadest context, the desires of your heart and God. Narrowing it down, I've tried to stress that the sacraments are part of God's project in creating the universe. So what I want to do brief, briefly is I want to trace that broad, the broad lines of that project. But first of all, and this is a caveat, on the one hand, you can say that time is just the sequence of events, you know, the, the, and that those events are not moving in any sort of meaningful direction. They just sort of happen. So, I don't know, you have, like, the Big Bang, and then a little bit later you have the Russian Revolution. <laughs> And then a little bit after the Russian Revolution, you have the Spice Girls. <laughs> and the most that we can say is one of these events follows, happens after another. But that's it. We can't discern any real purpose or pattern in these events. So that's one way of looking at the sequence of time. As Catholics, we don't see time and history like that. We read time and history through the lens of faith. And so that history becomes salvation history. You know, and again, in parenthesis, at this point, I have to tell you that faith is not our best guess based on the balance of probabilities. That's not what we as Catholics mean by faith. Faith for us as Christians is a gift from God. It is a participation in God's own vision. It's a grace by which God allows us to see the world as he sees the world and to interpret the world as he interprets the world. It allows us to see the world events, human history, from God's point of view. And in doing so then, instead of just an unrelated, unremitting sequence, we discern God's purpose. And so the meaning and the inner connection of events as they unfold. For us as Christians, history is not just a meaningless sequence of before and after Rather, it is God working out his designs over time and within my lifetime as well, within your lifetime. So briefly, from science, we see that the universe is evolving and bringing forth elements and then planets and stars and eventually life on at least one of those planets. Then life evolves in an ever more complex form until it arrives at us human beings. And we human beings are extraordinary creatures who have a capacity for communication and abstract thought that allows us to stand free of the network of material causality around us. That's what science tells us. In faith, we see that God, through evolution, is bringing about a creature who, because he is free, he or she is free from the material environment around him, or at least in some limited way free from that material environment, is able to make a free response in love to God. We alone, of all material creation, are able to raise our minds and hearts to God and say, we praise you, we love you. We adore you. And that's God's project. That's where God is moving the universe towards. And then we see the play of human history. You know, whatever that is, the discovery of, I don't know, the Iron Age and the Bronze Age, the discovery of agriculture and eventually technology, and then the rise and fall of empires, the Persians, the Romans, all of that sort of thing. And within that play of history, we see the formation of a tiny, insignificant people and nation, the people of Israel. 
They are not the most important, and nor are they the most powerful of nations. They arise from humble origins, wandering tribesmen, that's it. And they're enslaved from time to time, enslaved in Egypt. And then they flee from Egypt, which in the Bible is presented as a victory, but actually it's a catastrophe, isn't it? It's a, it, that's, that, that's, a, that's a people fleeing from, from, from a land that they've made their home. That's disaster. That's migrants running away from a, a land that will no longer accept them. That's not a victory. It's presented as a victory in the Bible, but actually, you know, from the eyes of the pure historian, that's a catastrophe for a people. And then eventually they conquer a bit of land and they have a kingdom and they have some really dreadful kings. I mean, even their favourite king, David, is a disaster, if you read it. I mean, he's a, he is a moral monster who murders a man so that he can have his way to cover up his adultery with, with that man's wife. You know? Horrific character. This is a kind of awful history of the, the people of Israel. Pretty bad kings. And then, then after they've had their succession of pretty bad kings, they are conquered again and again and again. But nevertheless, within that, this people have a growing awareness of, although they fail constantly, of nonetheless having been set aside for a special purpose. And they are, wait, are awaiting some sort of glorious future happening. What, to the eyes of the pure historian, looks like the fairly disastrous history of a very minor people, in the eyes of faith, we see God working out his purpose, working out his design. He is preparing this people to receive his son. And through this people, he will draw the whole of the human race to himself, to his son. When this son arrives, we get to the very heart of God's plan. He's showing of himself to us. We'll get to that in just a minute. But don't forget the history of God's desire to save humanity begins with the Jewish people. Because actually the history of the Jewish people is going to be very important. It's going to be like an interpretive key when we get to the sacrament. So, God sends his son. In faith, we believe. Let me just put it starkly and simply. In faith, we believe that this Israelite carpenter turned preacher is the son of God. He does the sort of things only God could do. He walks on water. And when he's not walking on water, he's turning it into wine. He heals the sick. He raises the dead back to life and he forgives sins, which is massive because only God can forgive sins. Yeah? Extraordinary. Moreover, when he dies, he passes into glory and he shows himself in glory to his followers. Our Catholic faith tells us that Jesus Christ, in his person, is both true God and true man. In his very person, he is the meeting of God and humanity. Jesus Christ is the complete revealing of God to his people. He is that reality in which God comes within the grasp 
of humanity. God places himself within our grasp. So that mystery that we began with, that is the grounds of the universe, shows himself entirely to us and unites himself to us entirely in the carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what we see in the eyes of faith. And note then, what does Jesus do in his lifetime? So we're moving on to the church, we're moving from Jesus to the church now. What does Jesus do in his lifetime? He doesn't write a book or letters. doesn't. Jesus didn't write the Gospels. Gospels were written about 60 or 70 AD. Jesus didn't write the Gospels. He could have written something down. You think about it. He could obviously read. We know from one of the Gospel passages that he takes the scroll and he begins to read in the synagogue in his hometown. Jesus was absolutely literate. There's no doubt about that. So if he could read, fair guess he could write. He could have written things down. St. Paul wrote things down. Jesus didn't write things down. Didn't write a book. What did Jesus do? Well, you read the New Testament. What Jesus did was he gathers around himself a community of disciples who are formed by the impact of his personality. And within this community, there seems to be something of a structure, something of a hierarchy. So there are disciples, and then there are these 12 specially chosen apostles who have some sort of role or feature within the community of disciples. And within the 12 apostles, Simon Peter is singled out for a special role. And moreover, Jesus commissions those disciples, those apostles in particular, to go out and to continue his work. What does Jesus do? In his lifetime, in his earthly ministry, Jesus founds a church. He doesn't write a book. He founds a community, a hierarchical community with Peter at the head of it. He founds that community around himself. He founds the church. And the night before he dies, he takes bread and he says, this is me. And he hands that over to his apostles. And he says, continue to do this as a memorial of me. That is to make me present. Continue to do this. He gives them the authority to do that. Jesus founds the Catholic Church. For 2,000 years, that's what the Catholic Church has been doing under the leadership of Peter. Jesus founded the Catholic Church. He didn't write a book, didn't do anything other than found the Catholic Church. You find in history an organisation that can trace its origins back to that community that Jesus founded. It's the Catholic Church. That's it. Jesus founded the church. That's what his public ministry was about. And think about it. There's that passage in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, you know, in which we, you know, we Catholics, we kind of read it. Huzzah! You are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. Great. Yeah, Peter. Role of Peter. Peter's really important. But actually, we miss the other thing. You know, so yeah, okay, in one sense it is all about Peter. But what about this bit? I will build my church. Christ wills to build a church. Christ wants to build a church. Christ intends to build a church. It is an explicit statement of intent. It is Christ's intention 
to build a church. Christ wanted to and did form a church. And that church continues the work of Christ in the world. Through the church, Christ continues to make an eternal sacrifice of us to the Father. That's what the church is about. And this is what I want you to see. The sacraments are not just little ceremonies that the self-appointed Jesus fan club made up after his death. The church was willed by Christ and the sacraments are nothing other than the continuation of Christ's ministry in the world. Jesus said to his apostles, go and baptise in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the church baptises. The impact Christ made upon his disciples is not just concerned about their own salvation. Eventually, that impact of his personality gives them a strength to go out and to stand up against the enemies of the faith and to be true to Christ and witness to Christ. So you remember that moment of Pentecost when the apostles are gathered in the upper room and they are praying together. They're a self-sufficient little community looking inward on each other, saving themselves, absolutely. But then the Holy Spirit comes upon them and at that point they go out and they bear witness to the world. They are strong enough to stand against those people who would stand against the faith in Christ. That's the sacrament of confirmation. That's what confirmation does to us. Sacrament of confirmation. The Eucharist. Do this in memory of me. You know, drop the mic. I don't really need to explain. Uh, Do you know what I mean? If I have to explain something about that, then, you know, do this in memory of me of me. And of course with the Eucharist comes holy orders. Christ didn't sit in a confessional. You know, nowhere in the gospels do we find that recorded. But he did forgive sins. Yeah? You know? Go, your sins are forgiven. Her sins, her many sins are forgiven her. Christ forgives <coughs> sins. And the church has been doing that ever since through the sacrament confession, reconciliation, penance, call it whatever you will. The church forgives sins as Christ did. The external appearance may have changed, but the reality of Christ's ministry continues. Christ healed the sick, and the church continues to administer the sacrament of the sick. And Christ was present at the wedding feast of Cana, and he witnessed and blessed that union with his presence. His church continues to do the same. In parenthesis, and I'm not going to go on about this now, but I would argue that marriage is nothing other than the Eucharist being played out in the love between man and woman. Maybe you can ask me that about that at question time. Okay. Sacraments are just the continuation of the public ministry of Christ. At which point you could legitimately ask me, But our faith tells us that at the end of his earthly life, Christ ascended into heaven. How then can he continue to act upon us here and now in Scotland in 2018? It's a good question. The faith of the church is that it is Christ who is the principal protagonist 
it's not quite the language that the church would use, but not technical theological language, but that's what it means. The principal protagonist in the sacraments, okay? So, you know, the bishop baptizes, but nonetheless it is, it is Christ who baptizes. The priest hears confession, but nonetheless it is Christ who absolves. Different theologians have explained that differently. And you, you know, however you choose to understand that is kind of up to you. The one I find most helpful, the explanation that works for me, is one given by a, uh, a Benedictine monk called Odo Cassell. And he was one of the, the, the kind of the leading geniuses behind the liturgical movement in the early 20th century that kind of feeds into the Second Vatican Council. And basically he says it's important to remember that Jesus Christ is both true man and true God. As man, his actions take place within history. And as a human being, his actions are encompassed by time, just as our actions are encompassed by time. And so they really happened 20 centuries ago. And with every passing year, they grow more distant from us. That's, you know, Jesus qua his humanity. In, in as much as he is a human being. But as God, remember, he is that mystery which brings creation into being. And with creation comes time. Time is a created reality. So if you ask what happened before creation, the answer is nothing, which again is problematic, nothing. Uh, because it's a mistake to talk about before when there is no time. There's no before creation because time is created. You know, and you can't have a before unless there's time. Point being that Christ is that mystery that created time with creation. And as such, because this mystery creates time, he cannot be encompassed by time. He is greater than time. So all of Christ's actions both occur within the sequence of before and after and transcend that sequence of before and after. And because the eternity of those actions remains, we can, if you like, constantly reach back into them and represent them in our own lifetimes. So what the same act of Christ forgiving sins in 30 AD looks like is the Lord's public ministry described in the Gospels. But that same action which transcends time, represented here and now, looks like the sacrament of confession. It's the same reality, but just, if you like, I suppose one way of putting it, thinking about it, is you've got your projector here. So you project onto a screen, you know, you get this image on this screen and it has this shape and this form. But if, for example, if I do this... You've got it being projected on my hands there. See, and it looks slightly different because it's being projected on a different background. The sacraments are the love of Christ, projected in 30 AD in his public ministry, yes. In 2018 in Scotland, the same image projected onto human history looks like the sacraments. That's what the sacraments are, because it's the same reality. Because Christ as God is not encompassed within time. Time does not exhaust the reality of what Christ does as God. That's one way of explaining it. 
the Thomists, and especially someone like Charles Journet, would sort of say, well, they would have a different line. Have I got time? Does it? Yeah, I've got time. There's a different line on it. So someone like Charles Journet would say, who's a French theologian, he would say, no, 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 no. What you so you know in benediction, prayers of benediction, um, Hmm? Yeah, fructum. Okay, so, so he says, let us so venerate these mysteries that the fruit remains in us. Okay, so it is, if you like, not the mystery itself, but it is the result of the mystery, the fruit of the mystery. And so someone like Charles Journet would say, it's like... It's like a star. You know how light takes time to, to travel to us. And so you can have a star that is a, a billion, billion, billion light years away. And the star is dead already. But the light is only just getting to us. And in the same way, Charles Jornet would say, look, the passion of our Lord, it's done. It's finished. It's happened once and for all. But the effects, nonetheless, continue to apply to us here and now like the light from a star. You are free to choose whichever way you find more kind of, more workable in your mind. The Catholic, the church is not defined on any of these kind of sacramental theories. But whatever kind of, whatever description of this mystery works for you, you are free to run with. But the point is, that whichever description you opt for, it is Christ who acts in the sacraments. The sacraments are the actions of Christ. And as such, they do not depend on the moral status of the person administering the sacraments. So when a good bishop confirms, it is Christ who confirms. When a corrupt worldly bishop confirms, it is Christ who confirms. And irrespective of the bishop's shortcomings, Christ's act is not frustrated the faith of the church is that the sacraments work ex opere operatum, by the right being performed, not ex opera operantis, by the virtue of the one performing the right. That's not what we believe. The sacraments do not depend on the holiness of the minister. They depend on Christ who acts through the minister. Okay quickly then. Matter and form. The writers of the sacraments are made up of matter and form. That is, they are made up of words and actions, because that's how we human beings communicate. And in the sacrament, God communicates with us in a way that is proper to us. And the reason that I highlight this is to show how the sacraments are part of God's providence that moves from creation into salvation history. It is the one providence that God has. So I'm just going to take one example to show you what I mean. So let's take baptism. The form of baptism are the words, I baptise you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And these words follow the words given by Christ to his apostles. The matter of baptism is the action of washing another human being with water. The minister plunges them into water or applies water to them and lifts them out of the water. At the level of creation, this has multiple meanings. 
Water is what you wash with, so obviously baptism is a washing, and that makes sense. Submerging and then raising someone pretty obviously has to do with rising up, lifting someone up. Water gives life, so baptism is life-giving, but there's another meaning also. Water, if you think about a stormy sea, water is a force of chaos, that is uncontrollable. That's the point about Jesus walking on the, on the water, you know. That's because Jesus can calm the chaos of the water. So lifting someone out of water can mean a victory over the forces of chaos. So that's, if you like, all of the natural symbolism of baptism. But that natural creative symbolism is then taken up in the history of Israel and interpreted. The Israelites pass through the waters of the Dead Sea, from slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land. It's just one of the instances in salvation history. So what you'd get is this natural created meaning, on top of which is placed the meaning given in salvation history, that brings us eventually to the water flowing from Christ's side as his heart was pierced by the soldier's lance on Calvary. And all of these meanings then are caught up with and united to the passion of Christ. But it is important to remember the salvation history, because if you want to understand what Christ is doing on the cross, what the water flowing from Christ's side on the cross means, you have to remember that he is the Paschal Lamb. And in order to understand what the Paschal Lamb is, you have to know the history of the Old Testament. You see? You have to know what passing through the waters of the Red Sea means to understand what the water flowing from his side means. And again, you have to understand the symbolism of the temple and the water flowing from the side of the temple. So the point is you cannot dispense. If you want to understand the sacraments properly, you cannot dispense with salvation history. You might say that baptism, and in fact every sacrament, sums up and encapsulates or recapitulates, is the formula, recapitulates salvation history that is God's saving project for us throughout history Christ has been making of us an eternal offering to the father and the whole of history is present in the different rites of the sacraments but not only that the sacrament as well as recapitulating salvation history looks forward to the future and definitive fruit of the life of heaven So the washing of baptism is that which prepares us to enter into the feast of the bridegroom. And you could do the same thing with all of the sacraments. You can pick out the whole of salvation history in all of the sacraments. Last thing, the sacraments communicate life. And they also, a number of the sacraments give us what is called a character. So you'll hear more about this in the other talks, but it's important. All of the sacraments give us or restore us to the fullness of life in God. That is what God has made us for. Three of the sacraments produce an irreversible change in our being. They mark us invisibly, but nonetheless they mark us. In traditional theology, they give us what is called a character. Baptism marks us out as priests. That is, people who make an offering to God. Baptism gives us a role and a dignity in the church. The church is that reality by which God pours his love into creation and creation responds by glorifying God and offering itself to God. In the whole of creation, we are those beings called to offer ourselves freely and explicitly to God. 
through us, through our lives offered to God, creation is drawn to the Creator. That is our vocation, our role as baptised Christians, and it is an awesome vocation. In confirmation, we receive the character and the function of being able to withstand the enemies of the faith and bear witness externally to Christ. And in the sacramental priesthood, a man is set apart to stand in the place of Christ and to offer the Eucharist to the Father and to Christ's people, the Church. God wills all three of these sacraments and the sacrament of marriage, which creates new life in the Church, and the sacraments of confession and the sick, by which we return to the fullness of life in the Church. They all work in harmony to build up the Church. The sacraments make the Church... The sacraments make us into the church. Finally, if all of that sounds very, very abstract to you, okay, how about this? Set you this as your homework. I always love those moments in the gospel when the Lord isn't making a big speech to the crowd, you know, so when he's not kind of saying, happy are the so-and-sos and happy are the such-and-suches, but when he's talking intimately with an individual I think they're they're the real key moments because sometimes you just catch in the gospel something that I'm absolutely it's such you know it's such an odd detail that that you you think no this is absolutely the very absolute words of Christ and so one of those incidents that I love is you know the story of Martha and Mary and it's that bit where the Lord turns to Martha And he says to Martha, 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 you worry and fresh about so many things, and yet few are needed, indeed only one. It's a beautiful idea, anyway. Of course it's beautiful, it's the Lord. But what I find really beautiful about that moment is is the repetition of the name. The repetition of the name serves nothing in the kind of the narrative purpose of that gospel. You, know, you wouldn't need the name to be repeated. But the fact that it is repeated is because I think whoever it is that recorded that incident was there. And he knows that the Lord said that. He knows that the Lord said, Martha, Martha, you worry and fret about so many things. Yet few are needed, indeed only one. And I don't think, I'm certain in fact, that that repetition... It's not exasperation. It's not that the Lord is kind of tired and annoyed. I don't think it's that. I'm sure it's not that. I think, I'm certain, that there is just an absolute ocean of tenderness behind that repetition. It's like, Martha, Martha, you worry and fret about so many things. And yet few are needed. Indeed, only one. So, this is your homework. Take that episode, and instead of hearing the name Martha, Martha, put your own name in there. Whatever your name is, put your name in there. And then sit in front of the tabernacle for 15 minutes at some point this week. And hear the Lord say to you, what's your name? Dominic. Dominic. You worry and fret about so many things, and yet few are needed, indeed only one. Hear the Lord say those words to you. And if you are intrigued, or fascinated, or better yet, hopelessly won over, 
by this Jesus who speaks to you, then I promise you, you will find him in the sacraments. Thank you.